I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 66, Ghosts of UC Santa Cruz. I'm joined in this episode by an old friend of mine, Liberty Stanovich, if you'd be so good as to introduce yourself, Libby. Hi, I'm uh, Liberty Stanovich. I'm a professor of Renaissance and Medieval Lit. I do some science fiction and eco-crit. And we overlapped in two different colleges, actually, at Santa Cruz and then at Santa Barbara. That's right. We went to the same grad school in completely different programs. I started a year earlier than Libby. I'm just going to say, I'm so exciting to be around that people followed me to grad school. It's true, although you went to UCSC a year after me, so. Well, that's true, but, you know, the party didn't get started until I was there. Entirely true. So we've known each other for far too long. And we watch a lot of bad movies, or used to, together. That's true. As uh, we talked about, you and I both went to UC Santa Cruz, and I think we need to kind of set the scene, because UC Santa Cruz was, and I get the impression from talking to people who've been there recently, still is, to a large degree, a very eccentric campus. It is. Santa Cruz itself prides itself on its oddity. You know, it, the bumper stickers you'll see around the country, keep Austin weird, keep Portland weird, and keep Santa Cruz weird. They're very common. And Santa Cruz is given to a lot of eccentric behavior, which has some downsides, but also a lot of upsides. But the campus is like a heavy concentration of the oddity that is Santa Cruz. Yeah. UC Santa Cruz is divided up into multiple colleges. The college mm -hmm. is where you live and where you take your core classes generally, but you do take classes in every college while you're there. So I was at Crown College, which was one of the more uptight colleges, which, you know, <laughs> frankly, I was a bit uptight when I was that age. So that made sense. And you were at Porter. I was at Porter, which is where the art majors were, although you had all kinds of different majors. I was, you know, literature and a history minor, and I took a lot of classes across the campus, but mine was the college with, I think, the highest number of people dressed in black per capita. That seems about right. And then, of course, you had the people who weren't dressed at all. That was not uncommon. Uh, to just wander around and find nude people on campus. Which, for some reason, I too, when I was there, I was just, the information was delivered to me that it was a clothing optional campus. And I saw oh, enough yeah. nudity casually that apparently it is not officially a clothing optional campus. It, it is not. Um, I worked in the student affairs office as a student there and had to look over a lot of the campus uh, regulations and campus historical documents. And no, it is absolutely not a clothing optional campus. But Enough people thought that, that it was not that unusual, even up where I was, where all the uptight students were at Crown, you'd run across nude people just kind of sitting in the common areas. Yeah. Porter College, the meadow behind it was a frequent place for nude sunbathing. There'd be a lot of warnings about avoiding that the first couple of weeks because of potential mountain lion sightings. And also, I mean, first rain of fall quarter, you generally get a bunch of people out dancing naked in the quad. That sounds like a Porter thing. I, I didn't see that up at Crown. Yeah, I, I never really understood it myself because I'm like slippery cobblestones, rain, nudity just all seems like, you know, the possibility of massive accidents. But I'm a cynic. Yeah. 
the naked bicyclists were the ones who really got to me wearing, by the way, you know, for our listeners, helmets. They were yes. very careful, but, you know, some of them would occasionally have knee pads, but other than that, totally nude. Yep. The campus's mascot, for anybody who's unaware, you know, you're typically, some places will have the pioneer or the Spartan or the mountain lion or the tiger or what have you. We're the Potsdam Bears where I am uh, now. The Bears? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a little too close to Berkeley. Well, we actually are right next to the Adirondacks, which have lots of bears. So To be fair, where Berkeley is used to have bears before they built Berkeley. Yeah, so they should have a ghost bear as a mascot. That's correct. UC Santa Cruz, however, did have the greatest possible mascot, the banana slug. Best mascot ever. Absolutely the best mascot ever. To be clear, we're not being sarcastic. Some people think I'm being sarcastic when I say that's the best mascot. It is absolutely, without question, the best mascot. And it is also so aptly Santa Cruz because the banana slugs are all over campus, so they're locally sourced. Mm -hmm. They're an important part of the Redwood ecosystem. That's right. They are hermaphroditic. Mm -hmm. So they're gender neutral, right? Or whatever gender identity they want to present. When they encounter each other, they have sex mutually because of that. So they make love, not war. (laughs) And at least the story I heard, and you might be able to back this up or discount it, but weren't they the response to a student protest because they were the unofficial mascot? That is absolutely true. Yes. Initially, UC Santa Cruz did not have a mascot, but when the campus decided to start competing in intercollegiate sports, which just so that people, again, part of the campus culture to understand the context for the stories we're going to talk about, UC Santa Cruz did have sports teams that competed against other schools. I was in the final month of my senior year before I found out that they existed because they got so little attention on campus. So again, kind of gives you a bit. Yeah, they weren't traditional sports teams as much. We had water polo, we had ultimate frisbee. Initially, the mascot was the sea lion. That makes a large degree of sense. There's sea lions all over the Monterey Bay where Santa Cruz is, and they would hang out on the piers. I got chased by a sea lion once. That was a uh, harrowing experience. (laughs) Sea lions are nearly a ton of angry mammal. Don't get near them. So initially that was mascot. And when that was declared, there were, in fact, campus protests. And they occupied an administration building, didn't they? That is exactly right. They occupied an administration building until the administration agreed to change the mascot to the banana slug. So... And when we were there, um, they were still doing narrative evaluations as a primary form of grading, which they've since dispensed with, which I think is a shame. Yeah. But at that point, you could only get grades in pre-med or upper division courses, and you had to request them, Mm -hmm. which is another thing I think that says a lot about the culture of it. It was starting to move more conservative than it had been, because apparently in its origins, there were a lot of stories of like professors sitting on the floor of the classroom with their students and talking and or you know, smoking pot together. UC Santa Cruz began in the 60s. And as I often say, the 60s and 70s were a hell of a drug. (laughs) Yes. See my name, Liberty. But (laughs) (laughs) And your sister's Trinity and Earth. Yes. People say, what were your parents' names? And I'm like, Frank and Gloria. They didn't name themselves. What? (laughs) But yeah, so Santa Cruz had very much a sense, at least, you know, in my experience of this willingness to embrace the absurd or the unusual or the idea that letting people be themselves was fabulous. And the East Colleges, I think, had a little less in some ways, but Crown and Merrill maybe more so than um, Cowell and Stevenson. 
I, I think that's true. Colin Stevenson were by and large more kind of typical college, but even there you'd find a lot of embracing of the odd. Yeah. And it was it was a wonderful place to be a college-aged person because one of the ways that I often try to explain this is I remember when I was headed off to college, my mother decided to try to lecture me about how, well, you know, when you get there, people are going to be putting a lot of pressure on you to be drinking all the time and doing drugs. <laughs> and here's the thing. Alcohol and drugs were freely available if I wanted them. Nobody ever put pressure on yeah. me, though. And in fact, when they found out at, back then, I was a complete non-drinker. And I mean, to this day, I've never used an illegal drug uh, because I'm boring. When people found that out about me, far from putting pressure on me to do it, they were happy they'd found a designated driver. Yeah. Everybody just sort of accepted that. Oh, yeah, that's just the way Matt is. It's cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah. I was on uh, one of the substance free quiet halls at Porter. And my friends, when they found that out, were like, wait, you know, did your parents put you there? And I said, no, I, I like going to bed if I want to and studying and being able, I can come down to your floor <laughs> if I want mm -hmm. to be loud. But, you know, then it was just like, ah, okay. And that was it. This was back when you could still have alcohol in the dorms if you were over 21. And, mm -hmm. I, I think you're right. I hadn't actually thought of that, but it's true that I never experienced any of that pressure. People just seem to be accepting of other folks' quirks by and large. Now, when we were in uh, UC Santa Barbara for grad school and we had a lot of friends who were undergraduates, a lot of them did tell me about having those sorts of pressures. Yes. And I had a, a brief time, I had a stepbrother who was at UC Santa Barbara. And I remember he could not accept that I wouldn't drink. It was a big thing that he had to try to get me to, which I always just cracked up to him being the way he was. But then when we were at UC Santa Barbara, I realized that, no, that's kind of the way this campus is. But yeah. UC Santa Cruz, it was just sort of a, yeah. Do it if you want to, but if you don't want to, that's fine. No problem. And it's a very large campus. Um, so there are shuttles mm -hmm. that'll take you around it. But, you know, when I would walk over to the library, I'd be going through Redwood Groves across these giant bridges. Yep. And so it just had lots of places to go ramble if you wanted, which occasionally was a problem. But, but yeah, so it was very much a really unique and interesting place, I think, to be a college student. It was also an old ranch from the 19th century and mm -hmm. early 20th century and held not just ranching facilities there, but there was logging industry, there were lime kilns, and the ruins of all of this are still all over the campus. If you go for a walk on the campus, you will come across ruined cabins, just the stone foundations mm -hmm. and parts of the walls still there. There's the lime kilns, which are very easy to get to by trail, but you have to know where they are in order to see them, because it's easy to walk right by them and not even know they're there. It gives you a very strong sense that there was there were people here long before any uh, of the campus buildings were constructed. Yeah, and there's enough of just these various natural expanses, even now still, even though so much more is built up. You know, there's also a lot of places you could go and walk and not see people. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very different, I think, than a lot of college campuses. Although you could also walk through the forest and then suddenly see a treehouse, you know, 50 feet up where somebody mm -hmm. was trying to avoid paying Santa Cruz rent, which is an ongoing yeah. issue. Yeah, Santa Cruz is not a cheap place to live. And part of it, too, because of this issue with rent, one of the things I was saying and thinking about and looking over some of these stories is the fact that you get a pretty decent number, at least on the West Side, we had a pretty decent number of upperclassmen who lived in the dorms the entire time. Yeah. And so I think you really had much more of that existing kind of cultural tradition of passing down the wisdom of the college or the stories of, you know, Porter culture where I was in a way that you don't necessarily 
other places where it's easier to find a place off campus? Mm -hmm. My wife went to Sacramento State where there were students who lived on campus, but most lived off campus. And they didn't lack folklore about the campus, but it was, from what she told me, very different and much less widely known than mm -hmm. I, I think everybody at UC Santa Cruz knew certain bits of folklore. Yeah, whether they were completely untrue or not. Yeah, most of it was nonsense. Yes. And, and I think before we get into some of the uh, ghost folklore, it might be worth actually mentioning this because, again, it does help set the context. So UC Santa Cruz was founded in the 60s. It is a very decentralized campus, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the things that every student on campus, at least when we were there, in scare quotes, knew mm -hmm. it was not at all true, but everybody knew it Common wisdom. was that. Yeah, was that the reason for the decentralized campus was to prevent uh, student protests of the sort you were getting at Berkeley? Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't true. The planning for UC Santa Cruz that was required to actually set up this widespread campus was happening before student protests became a big public issue. But it was you know, just a bit of the folklore, a way that we could tell ourselves that we were powerful. Authority might be afraid of us. Yeah. And standard wisdom at Porter was, as I was told so many times over the years, that those dorms had been specifically designed by a prison designer as a way to like control access points to that central quad, which again, wasn't at all true. And I don't know that any of the other colleges had quite as singular a central quad, which is a gathering space. It was a bad attempt to emulate Japanese architecture. Right? Mm -hmm. College 8 did, but none of the other colleges yeah, although College 8 still went a few different directions. They had a central yeah. sort of like, not quite a cruciform shape. I'm thinking, although it makes me think of naves of medieval cathedrals, <laughs> that's me. But yeah, so that kind of claim or uh, Kresge had some areas that were more experimental looking. Oh, Kresge was so cool. It's it's incredibly cool. It looked like a sort of Shel Silverstein architecture at times. It, yeah, and a lot of it was going along with natural curvature of the land. But even that, you know, it became a thing where although it was there for natural to go with natural curvature of the land, it could make running up it difficult. And I heard people very often talk about how that had been designed specifically to stop student marches. Yeah, exactly. Or riots. Which if you'd ever been on the campus, you knew that this was not going to stop a march because they <laughs> happened all the time. Plus the fact there were plenty of flat places to walk yeah. and to occupy like the administrative buildings. But this kind of story circulated and circulated really strongly. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I do wonder if part of that isn't that you had such a resident population for so long. I think you may be right about that. The nonconformist attitude of UC Santa Cruz definitely helped to feed into the idea that we were scaring, you know, the straights. Yes. And there was this notion that we were horribly frightening to outsiders, which we weren't, but we like to think that way well, about it. And ourselves. honestly, to be even worse, the West colleges tended to think of themselves as more nonconformist than the East colleges. And like I said, there was a horribly dismissive, oh, they're normal over there attitude <laughs> in ways that weren't at all true. And I had friends from other colleges, but yeah, a lot of that kind of sense of the importance and the the personality of each residential college, because there were a lot of stereotypes about what each kind of student was like. So I think that helped encourage the particular insular subculture and storytelling of each college. Mm -hmm. I think that it's not surprising that the most prominent ghost stories you will find about UC Santa Cruz were from your college, Porter. Yes. I mean, there was folklore at other colleges, but specifically your college had a lot of, and very specifically, the uh, dormitory building you lived in. Yes. And uh, 
the era I was there, like I said, there were a number of these that were stories that were absolutely reported and reported to the college administration and the night proctor. And, you know, I know of at least one of those situations where they got to move rooms because of it. How how did that work? Did they specifically go and say, hey, my room is haunted. I want to be in another one or? I believe so. They reported poltergeist activity. Really? Huh. And that they were having trouble, you know, sleeping, that they were having these kinds of, yeah. So I'm not exactly sure how it was framed, but they were relocated, which involved talking to the building administration. And it mm -hmm. was precisely because of complaints of poltergeist activity and haunting. You know, what's funny to me is that over at Crown, my apartment building started having flooding problems and we couldn't get them to move us yes. for a while. <laughs> so maybe if we just reported poltergeist activity, it's, we would have been it's okay. It's possible. I mean, or, you know, it could also just be because they had more empty spaces at that particular maybe. point. So they might've had some people move already. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I mean, whether or not it was taken seriously enough as poltergeist activity, it was definitely taken, the student distress was taken seriously enough that they relocated them. Well, it makes me think a bit like in real estate, you have to disclose, at least in certain states, whether or not a building is reputed to be haunted. And yes. the way you'll see people report this is ghosts are real according to the law. And no, they're not. What's real according to the law is reputation. Yes. And so it might be a similar thing where yeah, they may or may not have believed what the student was saying, but if the student was genuinely distressed, mm -hmm. they felt like that was something they had to deal with. Yeah, I mean, maybe a year that they were more crowded, it might not have been possible, but since they could easily relocate them, you know, and alleviate their stress, why not do it? And I do know the night proctor may have joked about it later. He wrote a book of stories mm -hmm. from his time as a night proctor at Santa Cruz, but he did carry holy water with him and he apparently, you know, sprinkled it around the room for them. I know that uh, there was a portion of that building that was allegedly closed off because of poltergeist activity. I'm skeptical of now, that. That would have been after my time. Okay. It was still open when I was there. All of the um, basement floor mm -hmm. was inhabited or inhabitable. This is one of the things that you'd mentioned in the notes is apparently unusual. And I'd never thought about that, mm -hmm. but they were semi-subterranean apartments where the front half of them, basically the hallway side the windows are just up, you know, the only part sticking about ground, but the back of the building, it's, you know, got full sun exposure. Oh. Crown student apartments were the same way. There was a reputation. And apparently, like I said, I'd come across other uh, reports supposedly of people thinking someone had committed suicide in the laundry room. The only laundry room was in the basement there and very, very dank and had no windows and never had a soap machine or a change machine, but oddly enough, had a condom machine, which also tells you a lot about Santa Cruz at the time. Yeah. Well, <laughs> a lot of the uh, residential assistants and other people who are in more responsible positions would actually have bags of free condoms on their door that you could go and grab from. But yeah, that was a thing that was just kind of ubiquitous yeah. on campus, which also, you know, Santa Cruz. So yeah, this this kind of subterranean area, which I knew a lot of people who lived in the basement and liked it, but there were, I think, a lot of stories of it just being grim and depressing. And apparently parts of it are supposedly closed off, supposedly due to hauntings, but I honestly, I, I think probably due to like water seepage or something mm -hmm. later on, but this was after my time. Right. Well, and I, I can tell you that up at Crown where the apartments were built such that several of them had one level that was subterranean. Water seepage was a problem. Again, yeah. we tried to get moved out of an apartment because of that. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. But I think that a building that's already got a reputation for being haunted 
has rooms closed off, the narrative just sort of builds itself. Well, and as you were saying with the population, like I knew enough folks who had either, you know, sort of more occult oriented personalities or beliefs or were open to that kind of discussion where I know you'd been saying that you'd heard some of these stories recounted as like titillating or, you know, shocking Mm -hmm. or, oh. I'm important. I heard a lot just, you know, with the sort of person being like, yeah, I burned some incense because, you know, the poltergeist activity. So, you know, there's some stuff going on on the floor, whatever. And just went on with what they were saying, which is, you know, again, a certain percentage of the population, high goth population, Mm -hmm. high, you know, more likely to be pagan population, more likely just a lot of people who were very matter of fact about the fact that they took it as a given yeah. that there were hauntings in Bidorn. I, I, and I think, again, that speaks to a bit of a culture difference between Crown College, where I was living in Porter, because while there were certainly people of that persuasion at Crown, they were a bit less common, but there were a lot of high drama people at Crown. So very often they- There are a lot of high drama people at college. It, that's true. It's part of the age. I do know there was the particular suicide in 98, which is far right. from the only death you know, at a college campus. Those happen- but um, that was right after I'd graduated, but I was still living in town. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, how much that shook everyone because it was also so very public. But before that, I wasn't really aware of any stories of hauntings in a dorm, which is the interesting part mm-hmm. to me, because it was very much it's a dorm. You know, they're both about the same size, yeah. but somehow it was the one. And now there are stories about a dorm because of that suicide. Well, and I've also seen people shift the location of the suicide to B dorm as a way of explaining the longstanding stories at B dorm. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I've also seen people okay. take stories that I heard about B dorm when we were students and transfer those stories wholesale over to a dorm. Well, I mean, I do a lot of rambling in thinking about this, but I mean, there's so much about that sense of being alone and off on your own and trying to adult, for lack of a better verb. It is such a liminal period for so many people that there's both a sense of anxiety about potential dangers and also being, you know, out in the world and important and everything's focused on you. And I think sometimes ghost stories and ghost stories centered in the building you live in, you know, are a great example of how both of those come together in terms of anxieties about not being important, anxieties about threats. You know, this is something that is specifically there and threatening you and the place you live that is special in all these ways. So I wonder about that transferability because why didn't it bounce over to College 8? Maybe there's a ghost story about College 8, but I've never heard one. No, I in looking at this, I found a lot about Porter. I found a lot about a meadow, and we'll get to that. And I found one, and you actually sent me an article about the same one about Stevenson, but I found none about College Aid. A couple about Oaks. Okay, I, don't, I didn't find any about Oaks. That's interesting. No specific stories, but people saying, yes, my building was haunted. Okay, so more um, just sort of a phenomenological, I had weird yes. experiences as opposed exactly. to, and here's the narrative. Okay. But, you know, which is interesting, because like I said, those personalities of the colleges um, and of the mm-hmm. design, I think, may have had something to do with it. Yeah. You know, College 8, I don't know how to describe College 8 architecture. We used to describe College 8 as suburbia because it yeah. looked like very much a suburban. Nice Southern California upper- suburbia. And then Oaks, which is right next to it, looked like a bunch of brown boxes. So our nickname for the two was suburbia and the boxes that came in. Okay. But Oaks, again, you know, they have a bunch of different houses that are dedicated to sort of like different um, ethnic cultures and Mm -hmm. experiences and highlighting those kinds of achievements. You know, so again, you get people who may be personally invested in their environment in a way 
Well, it also makes me think about there's a historian, Finucane, I believe is his name. One of the things he would write about was the use of ghosts as a way of cementing you and your family. And in this case, we use family very loosely to mean your social group yes. to a place. You know, he was talking specifically about Victorians, but you know, you buy a house and if it's haunted or if you can claim it's haunted, you've now demonstrated that you've got a tie to the deep history of this place because you're tied to this ghost who is tied to the deep history. Absolutely. Alina Pirock, the historian who works a lot with ghost tourism at Colonial Williamsburg, mm -hmm. was telling me that there's a very similar phenomenon with people who would move into the South in the late 19th and early 20th century, where a lot of the Southerners would become quite annoyed that they were attempting to, as one poem put it, buy ghosts in jars. The idea being that you furnish your home in a way that nobody there would have, but it's all authentic furniture, just you know, too much of it or the wrong pieces going together, but that you might also bring in a a haunting as a way of showing that you really belong there. Yeah. And this is one of the things, and I'm thinking through the lens of urban legend theory, mm -hmm. which I know might sound a little weird, but um, my initial exposure to a lot of it was Jody Enders oh, yeah. is a Santa Barbara scholar in the French department where she has the book on death by drama and other medieval urban legends, mm -hmm. where there are a lot of stories that circulate as absolutely true, right? About, oh, you know, this person played the devil in this town and then went insane and killed its wife. You know, there was this town where supposedly they had a martyr play with two condemned prisoners and the one cut the other's head off as part of the right. These stories that circulate from all kinds of other cities. But when she started trying to actually find records of them in the city that they were reported as happening in, never happened. But looking at the way that they articulate a lot of the anxieties people had about that border between performance and the self, particularly in terms of religious performance often, or how drama is working to kind of create stories or tell them. She does some really nice work connecting it to a lot of the kind of emergent cultural anxieties, mm -hmm. right? And so thinking about how some of these stories in particular speak to that sense of being an adolescent adulting for the first time, but also, you know, you want your campus to have importance, to have meaning, to be special and unique, that you have some kind of claim to, which I thought about because when I was poking around initially for college ghost stories, UC Merced has a bunch already. Oh, I'm going to have to- And they haven't been around very long at all. I'll have to look into that because I drive up to UC Merced in about an hour, so- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Merced, when did it open? It was- it, it was after we graduated. Yeah, it was like a 15 years ago or something like that. Something. Yeah, it wasn't long ago. It hasn't been 20 years yet, I don't but they already have all kinds of ghost stories, supposedly, uh, which, again, that sense of wanting the place you are to be important, to have a history that you're connecting with. So you really belong there, I think, is mm -hmm. something that's absolutely going on. And, you know, from my perspective, also speaks to a lot of these things. Now, in the case of a lot of these stories we've talked about so far, they're not really even stories. They're more phenomenological things. So Building B and Building A at Porter, you've got people experiencing night terrors, sleep paralysis. You have people reporting what they would describe as poltergeist phenomenon, but there's not really a story mm -hmm. behind it. It's more just a thing that happens. Yes. In the case of Building B, it seemed like there was sort of a narrative built around Building B, not so much of here's what happened, therefore, but more Building B has these things happen, that means there's something significant about building B. Yeah, well, and bits like the so-called Bermuda Triangle, right? 
of rooms, which I thought was really interesting because I'm reading through this and that supposedly happened in the 2000s. We should explain that the Bermuda Triangle of Rooms is a set of rooms on um, first floor where apparently there's just a high concentration of weird stuff that happens. But what was interesting to me was I had initially assumed that it was going to be talking about the third floor of B-Dorm and the 90s, because that's when a bunch of complaints were happening when I was there. Hmm. But again, several rooms on a particular hall. So it's as if the location migrated. Yes. The legend of the Bermuda Triangle of weirdness remained intact, but it moved to a different floor. Exactly. That it wasn't so much room oriented as like there's a cluster responding to some kind of thing that happened, which. Right. And I know it may sound funny, but I don't know if the particular apartments at the different colleges had the same kind of sense of unity. But I know that people identify themselves not just by which dorm they were in, but by their hall in a real sense of like, this is my location and identity in this college. Mm -hmm. We we didn't have that in the apartments, no, but I definitely observed that at Crown and Merrill residence halls. People were very much identified with their residence hall. Yeah. And so I, I wonder if part of that particular location and hall, you know, the sense of these linked rooms is part of creating a story about that being a particularly haunted location. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is an area marked out by some kind of presence or history. And generally, you know, if I heard any kind of explanation, it was about um, someone had supposedly died in that room. Right. Which is the generic ghost story of someone died here and. Right. But no specific someone. And it's interesting that I did see some stories move wholesale to building A. And I've also seen instances where an actual documented death that occurred in building A got moved over to building B yes. because it provides a narrative around which you can take these you know, more disparate phenomenological things and say, and it's all connected to this event. Yeah. And that's, we've referenced it, but particularly, I think it was it 98. It was 98. Yeah. Yeah. There was, as I understand it, a student had shot themselves and fallen into the quad off the balcony. That's my understanding as well. Yeah. And these two dorms are around a central quad. So this is very much the kind of heart of the residential community. People were awake. It was very visible. There's a lot of trauma associated with it. Yeah. And so there have apparently been stories since of people seeing him dressed in the clothing he was wearing. Have any of those that you found had him doing anything or just being visible? Just being visible, often walking around. But it definitely did seem to be tied into, I I think at this point, it's more knowledge that a thing occurred. And because you already had pre-existing claims about what would happen, it allows you to form a more coherent narrative. Because I've seen a lot of things that say after 1998, these things started happening. But as somebody who was there before 1998, I know that those stories were around well before that. Yeah, I graduated in 97. Yeah. So, I mean, these stories and the sort of matter-of-factness were absolutely there. But I did know people, uh, including at the time a friend of mine named Megan, I remember the day after it happened, seeing her, she was very badly shook up and understandably so. It it really affected people uh, as as it should. Even just the knowledge of someone dying, whether it's a suicide or not, right. you know, really impacts the whole school community. We unfortunately, uh, this year, there were two students who died during spring semester at the other college in my town. Mm-hmm. One by suicide, one had drunkenly decided to jump into the river. Ah. Uh. So it took them about three days to find his body because it was very cold. Oh, man. It very heavily impacted the college community, not just the first one, but the second, because it's just that awareness. I mean, part of it, too, 
there's that sense of being almost invulnerable at times mm -hmm. when you're a college student, as I think of the many stupid things I did. Yeah. And, you know, not being pejorative about intelligence in any way, but I did many, many foolhardy things that were not particularly sensible. But there is that disruption of the narrative. And this is one of the things I think I mentioned in my notes about trauma theory, too, that some of the ways that trauma theory circulates, and there are different waves of it, as with everything. But that idea that part of what happens with trauma is that it disrupts our narrative of how the world works, right? Our kind of baseline norms that it's hard to put it together. It, we experience it in this fragmented way, often right. um, a traumatic event. And so trying to put a story to it is a way of trying to process or make it understandable, right? That that telling in itself is an attempt to put a narrative to something we don't have a narrative for and to make it make sense and reintegrate back into our sense of the world as it exists, right? Mm -hmm in which college students are unlikely to be the ones dying, mm -hmm. right? Although statistically, I mean, people die at all kinds of ages, yeah. but we don't tend to want to think about it. And particularly with suicide, it is so immediate because there is another kind of story to it necessarily. Everybody tries to do the, he was such a quiet guy. Yeah. And so I think that existing story both is maybe an attempt to process it, but also, and maybe this is me being too into thinking about adolescence and anxiety and coming from a background of dealing with a lot of anxieties in the early modern period. Also, you're the parent of a teenager right now. That's true, but not wanting that death to be forgotten, mm -hmm. right? Because the idea that someone, that such a traumatic event occurred and then business as usual can go on with nothing marking it, I think is in itself a really upsetting idea. Well, that ties in with something that a historian and a dramatist named Koya Paz I don't know if you're familiar with her. No. She was doing research for, I forget if it was her master's or her PhD, on lynchings. And mm -hmm. she could find information in the newspaper morgues, but other places you couldn't really get a lot of information because there was a desire to not memorialize these events. Yeah. But she found that fairly consistently ghost stories regarding the lynchings appeared this she found this in california and i believe in chicago mm -hmm. and it seems like a very similar thing to what you're talking about where it lets you take this you know essentially a, a senseless brutal act and build a narrative around it but also importantly it's a way of ensuring that there's a cultural memory even if it becomes distorted yeah a cultural memory that this event occurred well and that's one of the arguments you see in those various generations of trauma theory in literature the ones who you know sort of taking Freud and running with it as literature did, completely disconnected with psychology being done with Freud right. uh, largely a while ago. But, you know, with Freud and certain others, that idea of trauma is unspeakable, right? There's a number of big names in terms of trauma and how, you know, what speaks more loudly, story or silence, or, you know, Kristeva talks about the abject. But this idea that it's unspeakable and you can't talk about it and you're avoiding it, but then later waves of trauma theory where they're like, no, no, this process of telling stories about it is part of that attempt to make it visible again, to keep it memorialized, to not just let it pass unremarked because it is traumatic. You know, and a lot of things that have to do with race or with various kinds of traumatic spectacle. Like I said, I was thinking of some of the revenge tragedies I work with in the early modern period that are based on stories of murder or sorry, my cat or uh, particularly household murder. Right. 
Arden of Faversham is a notorious in early modern England where it's based on an actual murder case where the wife got a whole bunch of other people in on the deal to try to murder her husband, mm-hmm. you know, or the Duchess Malfi, which is based on the brothers murdering the Dowager Duchess because uh, she remarried in secret, you know, but all of these intimate family murders wanting to have a story, right? about it you don't really want to talk about it or boast about it but you want it to not disappear and it helps you make sense of how it happened i think to an extent we saw that happen in real time like in late 2001 i mean how many almost instant urban legends appeared about the world trade center yeah and i mean even then it it sounds there was a case in my town my first year teaching here i think it was oh i feel horrible not remembering the month it was fairly early in my first semester here where we had a murder case that's still unsolved of 12 year old, I think, who was beaten to death in his apartment. And they never caught, you know, who it was. And because we were a small enough town and a small enough campus, I had a couple students in my class who had gone to school with his brother. Mm. Right. And we were starting the Duchess Amalfi that day, which seemed like a really problematic. It has infanticide, it has murder, it has all kinds of fun things. Uh, it's got like canthropy too. Well, there you go. You should read it. It's great. But it ended up being actually really useful because, I mean, I just gave them time to talk about it at first because, you know, there's trauma. They just found out about it. But one of the things that we ended up talking about because we were about to start this play that was based on a real life murder case was the way that we try to put stories to it. And that that is a kind of way of comforting ourselves and understanding it is trying to create narrative around it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that there is a possibility of putting it together in some way, you know, even if we never get it solved, which... Sadly, like I said, that case never was. We had a whole problem with a big mess. But that idea of being able to have a story that helps you remember things that happened and try to make sense of it is huge. And I really think when we get these moments that are connected to a traumatic event, I think a lot of it is that shared trying to process it and trying to make sure it doesn't disappear. So having a campus death where, you know, we don't like to think of young people dying. We don't like to think about the way I mean, we, we tend to think about college as being a very liberating time in somebody's life, but it can also be a time of very high pressure, very high stress and yeah. emotional trouble. And so idea here is that the stories can form as a way of helping people to cope with creating a narrative around the death of somebody who culturally we don't like to think of as being susceptible to that. Yeah. Or a situation that just ruins our story of how things work. Right. Right. This isn't what happens, except it is. I mean, we all know that I work, I've been on a college campus for the entirety of my adult life. Mm -hmm. And sadly, you know, adolescent suicide is a constant problem. Right. But yeah, that desire both to process, but also not, not wanting somebody to just disappear. Yeah. You know, wanting there to be some kind of echo, which I think ghost stuff talks about a lot. It, it certainly can. And I think there are many cases where it does. Um, and I also think that you get you can get a lot of these different causes interacting. Like you, know, you and I were discussing at uh, the Porter residential halls, the, most of these stories already existed. But when you had the death, suddenly that became a narrative around which ex- pre-existing stories got wrapped. Yeah, yeah. Because it gives you a logical beginning. Yeah. I was just thinking, too, it's it's interesting, too, in that um, many of these other stories have to do with women. Yes. But this is, you know, a story of a male ghost because there's a specific person. Yeah. And it is a specific event that did happen to a uh, young man. Yeah. But speaking of the stories having to do with women, let's move on to Lily, who's 
in some ways kind of a mascot yeah. ghost for uc santa cruz yeah and i i hadn't actually heard about her which is interesting because apparently the stories were around at the time and she was mm -hmm. in the porter meadow she gets uh, put into two different locations the porter meadow and there's another location that's often called the haunted meadow when i heard the stories i always heard them attributed to the porter meadow but looking online i keep finding them attributed to this other location which uh we'll get to shortly there are a lot of meadows there are so uc santa cruz basically has two halves there's the meadows on the southern half of the campus and the forests on the northern half mm -hmm. again it was a great place to be college age oh yeah lily is allegedly a young woman probably a hippie so dating to the 60s or 70s likely transient who died of some never agreed upon cause somewhere on campus but is seen frequently wearing kind of tattered white clothing walking around the meadow or sometimes seen completely nude which again as we discussed earlier in the episode would not distinguish her from some other students on this campus <laughs> yeah there is some discussion of the fact that there was indeed at least and like i said with the tree houses and things mm -hmm. you've had a number of people who choose to live in the forest because it doesn't freeze in santa cruz there's some heavy rain but so it's a place where it's hard to freeze to death Yes. And it's also a place where it's hard to have heat stroke it. It doesn't get too hot and it doesn't get too cold. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so you get supposedly, you know, she lived in the forest there and was frequently seen in the meadow. I wouldn't be surprised that at least someone did. But yeah, but that report that she died of something and then seeing her again, which is odd because it doesn't sound like any of those stories are scary. She's just kind of there. And, and to be fair, a lot of ghost stories are not scary. Some of them are even comforting. I, again, I'll point to Alina Pirock. A lot of the ghost stories that she talked about were very much, you know, you want to encounter the spirit of Thomas Jefferson. You want to encounter yes. the spirit of George Washington because it will be a great experience for you and it will not be scary in the least. Lily, in this case, seems to be a character who is emblematic of the way that a lot of people at UCSC think of themselves. You know, there's a very much an attitude, at least when we were there, and from what I can gather, this is still the case to a degree, that it was a continuation of the 60s and 70s. You know, the hippie style, you know, dressing as people imagined hippies would, adopting very hippie-esque lifestyles and so on was really common you know a lot of people bought mm -hmm. their groceries from a grocery co-op on campus and so having this spirit of a hippie there just seems to fit yeah i mean embodied legacy of the place exactly she's very much the spirit of the campus in a very literal and metaphorical sense well, and it's interesting too because in terms of the phenomenological stories I don't know about the other ones you've tracked down, but the ones that I heard reported at the time were largely reported by women, mm -hmm. right? You know, I had my own experience, which we can talk about a little if you want. But, you know, I think about that, the phenomenological stories that tend to be these kind of violent experiences. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I heard anyone who identified as male reporting one when I was there. And so if I'm thinking about it, not through the lens of the occult, but through lens of, you know, the moment the people reporting it, the kind of experience and thinking about the sort of sphere of unspoken but absolutely extant threats um, that are often linked to being a college woman in terms of talking about assault, harassment, you know, the kinds of things that nobody talks about but are constantly present, right, which we've gotten mm -hmm. a little better as a culture about discussing, you know, the fact that sexual 
harassment, sexual assault, various kinds of other things that often target people who are presenting as women or gender minority. Mm -hmm. So if there isn't some kind of link in some way from that phenomenological report to those broader kinds of traumatic experiences that, you know, are constantly threatening, but not really talked about, if that makes sense. You know, what's interesting about this, because you know, I think about it and I've known men who have reported having strange experiences, mm -hmm. but it does seem to be more common in my experience for women to report a lot of that. But one of the things that, as you're saying, this made me think about was there is a sociologist and I am blanking on their name, but I know I've read their work where working specifically with ghost hunting groups in the U.S., because I've talked to people who've worked with ghost hunting groups in other countries and things are a bit different. But in the U.S., men tend to be the more techie ones. They want to pull out the tools and the EMF meters and all of this. There are women who do that too, but it is lar more largely male, whereas women tend to think of themselves as more sensitives. They're the psychics who experience things directly as opposed to measuring them. And it seems like it's similar to what you're saying here in a way. And the tone of it too, right? There's been a yeah. number of people, you know, over the years who have talked about the tension between that initial early 20th century, late late 19th century welcoming in people with seances and the sort of spiritualist movement where it was very much frequently female mediums, whether they had a male spirit guide or not speaking to them. Yeah. And that kind of inviting as opposed to the tone of a lot of ghost hunting shows now that are very macho, like we're here to, you know, try to scare us. We're confronting the ghosts mm -hmm. in a way that maybe echoes that too, you know, is almost a parody of gender norms, right? Right. But yeah, I mean, something about that anxiety about unseen threats manifesting in this way. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. And I, intuitively, that seems correct. And as I'm thinking about it, the majority of the people I know who have at least been willing to say they've had a weird experience have been women. It's not a huge majority, but I'd say probably like 60 percent or so. But I do wonder if, especially in a college environment where you've got a lot of people being kind of out on their own for the first time and not having some of the protective structures from home around them if that might be more common with women. Or, you know, it could also be that we tend to be less dismissive of people presenting as women who are complaining about being victimized or anxious about being victimized. So it could just be people who are more comfortable saying it. There's so many different things. That's entirely here. possible. Yeah. L like less of a, I less of a worry about admitting you're being, that you're scared. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there are a lot of those threats and, you know, particularly with the generic response every time there was any kind of case of putting up a flyer that said, don't walk alone at night, you know, mm -hmm. carry a flat, all of the things that had virtually nothing to do with the vast majority of sexual assaults on a college campus. Right. right. But that kind of like, this is just a scary environment and it's your job to be on guard all the time. And at UC Santa Cruz, you've got the mountain lion warning signs all over the place too. Those did curtail, you know, sunbathing the first couple of weeks in the Porter Meadow for a lot of people because, you know, there was a lot of discussion of how not to look like a deer. Yeah, <laughs> I remember those talks. Yes. But so Lily, though, has appeared allegedly either at Porter Meadow or there's another meadow, which sometimes gets called the Haunted Meadow on the other side of campus. Mm -hmm. And another really well-known story is associated with that location, which is that of Sarah Cowell. Now, the Cowell family had owned the ranch. Sarah was a daughter of the family that owned the ranch. And at the age of 40, she was out picking wildflowers, got onto the wagon or carriage, 
or sometimes depending on the story, the horse, there was in fact a vehicle involved. I did confirm that. And she was essentially thrown out and died of her injuries very quickly. Now that is all true, yes. but people have reported seeing her ever since. And just as Lily sometimes is said to sometimes be at the Porter side of the campus and other times other side of the campus, the ghost of Sarah Cal, although it's associated most widely with the area called the Haunted Meadow, I've also heard it associated with Poganip Park, which is a state park right next to the campus, yeah, which has I, several meadows in it. And I'd heard things about Poganip being haunted as well, although, oh, yeah. yeah, and looking across the internet, there are a number of stories, although some of them do, of course, have the ubiquitous there was a Native American yeah. that seems to be whatever kind of manifestation of white guilt in California. Yeah. But but yeah, was the Poconip ever part of the Cowell Ranch? Parts of it were, I believe. It, it looked, at least in the report that you turned up, that the first sightings that were reported of Sarah's ghost weren't till the 1970s. I believe that's correct, which again ties in with the idea that this is the point where, you know, this is no longer a ranch. It's become a college campus and people are building up a folklore that is specific to college life. And in this mm -hmm. case, I think it gets back to the earlier conversation we were having about rooting yourself and your experience in the past of the place, yes. you know. Sarah Cowell is still here with us. We are still part of the tradition of this location that included this family mm -hmm. that owned this land. Sarah Cowell had died in, I believe it was 1903, early 20th century. And, you know, here we are 70 years later and people are starting to see her ghost where they've never, where nobody's ever seen it before. Yeah. But you also, for the first time, have, you know, several years of people who've wandered around and have come across the ruins of the old ranch. And the, as we said earlier in the episode, the ruins are everywhere. Physically, you can tell that there was something else there. I remember the first time I came across an old cabin while walking in the woods. It was a weird, eerie experience. Yeah. And there is that sense of the uncanny when you find it because there's no story attached. Right. I mean, this is maybe my obsession with, you know, how a lot of these things try to articulate or work through people's anxieties or tensions or uncertainties. Right. Which is why I study the Renaissance, because that's just a big ball of nervousness. Mm -hmm. But these moments of trying to both, you know, put yourself in that long term continuity. And I mean, maybe I'm fixated on this because I'm thinking those adolescents, but also not wanting that previous history to have just disappeared with no mark other than these stones. Mm -hmm. Right. That kind of terror of what's going to happen, what mark will we leave in the world, which oddly enough, I started thinking about some like late 10th century Anglo-Saxon poems mm -hmm. that are concerned about, you know, everybody's going to die. It's the end of the world. And look at all the abandoned houses. Mm -hmm. Like the Wanderer is a famous one, which again, you've got a big, you know, you had a big idea that big round numbers, the year 1000 was going to be, you know, the end of the world. And the... I remember living through Y2K. Yeah. But it's the same thing. Yeah. 2012, we're scared of big round numbers. You know, they did it again a few years later because they changed calendars and some people were like, okay, I'll give my stuff away now and go stand on hilltops. That's right. But that sense, that articulated sense of anxiety, is this all going to pass away with no record of it? Will it not matter to future people? Well, you know, it's funny that that's the way that you're looking at it. And I don't think you're wrong, but I think because, I mean, I'm an archaeologist and that's when I was studying archaeology. I look at it as, you know, from almost the opposite direction of there's a thing here. That means something happened. Let's find out what happened. Well, exactly. And you can do it with the training. It starts revealing itself. Yeah. But that lack of a story to the random observer, right, I think sometimes explains, you know, the origin of 
or lack of control, lack of sense of a power, because the person who doesn't have that training is like, oh my God, what was here? Yeah. I don't know. And that, that, you know, we want to tell stories. Stories help us understand the world. I have a friend who works on a lot of really fascinating combinations of psychoanalytic theory and archaeology mm -hmm. in terms of Anglo-Saxon works, where, you know, thinking about barrow mounds and the way that they signify for the Anglo-Saxon population, where they are both ancestors and invaders who are still invading, and the kind of echoes of those things on the world that shared, I kind of know what this is but I also don't. And so I'm going to make up some stories about what's going on with it. The kinds of legends about like Barrow Whites and various kinds of evil spirits that would inhabit a Barrow Mound of Vikings that, you know, if you open it up, they're going to attack you, mm -hmm. which any number of archaeologists would be constantly haunted if that were the case. Yeah. When I bought my house, the realtor made sure to let us know that this place had been used as a hospice facility and, you know, mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that we were okay with buying a house that had been used as a hospice facility. And like, yeah. With what I do for a living, if I was going to be haunted, it would have already happened. Exactly. But I think it also gives you a firm, not not also, but I mean, I believe this is actually part of what you're talking about. It gives you a firm narrative around which to tie things. Oh, there's weird stuff in the forest. It's the cowls. And the cowls yes. are still around because you can see Sarah's ghost. So, and Sarah's ghost isn't threatening. She's just kind of hanging out there picking wildflowers. Yeah. So, I mean, that might be part of it too. Because honestly, for a lot of people, you really don't have those experiences of walking through a place that you cannot see people. Going back to those complaints mm -hmm. that some students, you know, post online now about how uninhabited the campus is. It was glorious. It was amazing. But at the same time, normally, you know, to have that experience... When I was growing up, I would have to go travel to a state park or something, mm -hmm. right? I was in San Francisco. There's Golden Gate Park. There's other spaces, but they're very much, you know, demarcated grounds that you go into. Right. Whereas here, you just went out of the dorms and turned and walked down into the woods. And so that sense of that being kind of creepy if you're not used to it, mm -hmm. right? The number of Southern California students who were from the LA metropolitan area who came up to Santa Cruz and could walk everywhere, which you know, not all of them had sidewalks at home. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're in this space with no other people in a way that can create that sense of the uncanny and trying to find ways to make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's interesting. I never really thought about the difference in experience because I grew up in a small town. I mean, it's now been absorbed by a larger city. Yeah. But when I was a kid, it was a small town that was surrounded by agricultural fields. There were abandoned farmhouses. We saw things in various states of decay. And so, well, I will admit, I mean, even as a professional who deals with these things now, I still find a little bit of a eerie sense when I go into them, but it, it didn't defy explanation to me the way that it may have. And I hadn't really thought of this until you said until until you said just now, but I don't think it defied explanation to me the way that it would for somebody who was from San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Jose, where they just simply did not have that as part of their daily experience. Yeah, I now live in Potsdam, New York, which is, you know, almost Canada, New York, right up above the Adirondacks. I'm in a town of a big bustling town of twelve and a half thousand people. Mm -hmm. That's one of the big centers. People complain about gridlock here because we have a couple of traffic lights. Now driving around like my kid, since they were, you know, four and a half has grown up in an area where you see abandoned buildings and you see old, you know, the area where this had fallen down and nobody bothered building on it again because 
it's not such an incredibly impacted urban area that people immediately want to bulldoze and build something new and areas that you can just drive without seeing people for a while. And so I don't think kiddo would have the same sense of the uncanny. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm finding really interesting about our conversation here is, so when I talked to Michelle Hanks about NYU, there were very clear ghost stories of you will see Edgar Allan Poe at this place. You will see those specific people. And I mean, we have a couple of those on the Santa Cruz campus. Lily and Sarah Cal, but we have a lot more of just, yeah, weird stuff happens over there. And yeah, I think that part of the difference is that the NYU stories with one exception, maybe two exceptions that I can remember weren't from students. They were from tourists because NYU is spread all throughout New York City. And so these are places that ghost tours will go. Whereas at UC Santa Cruz, it is strictly a homegrown student folklore. Yeah. And that makes me think too, with, you know, how much the landscape has a role in it. Yeah. Because stories of Elfland, which when I got there, had already started being bulldozed. Elfland, for those who don't know, is a set of smaller meadows and woodlands that were eventually demolished to build what were called colleges nine and 10. Yeah, and I think they have some new name now. Yeah, I, I believe you're correct, but I know them as colleges nine and ten. So. Yeah, but apparently there was a big wooden labyrinth there. Yep. At some point, lots of people did different sort of little art installation things. Um, and it was a frequent place. It was a place where you would go and either eat mushrooms or drop acid and play with the elves, which is why it was called Elfland. Yeah, but lots of reports of just kind of weird sense of things mm -hmm. or things seeming strange, which, you know, uh, I start thinking about how unlikely it is for us to see natural space that is not <laughs> manicured or governed or contained in some way. So much of the American population is concentrated in coastal areas or larger urban centers, mm -hmm. right? That this is, you know, a much rarer experience. It's always interesting talking to, we get some students up from New York City mm -hmm. and the very different experience that they have living up here and the things that are surprising to them that, you know, I'll nod along with, but I've kind of forgotten at this point because yeah the lack of pretty much almost any public transportation for instance right so the ways that different places or locations manifest differently if you're walking all the time as opposed to being used to driving because you have to drive because you don't have a grocery store in your small town mm -hmm. so uh it is a weird space for a lot of the students i think coming from coastal california yeah and we did have a lot of students from los angeles from you know uh san francisco berkeley oakland from san jose yep. and yeah i i remember talking to students for whom this was the first time they had been in a place where you know you could walk a long distance and nobody thought it was strange and it is interesting that it's so very specific to locations. I mean, apparently dorm A now has more stories associated with it, but it wasn't just Porter. It was that dorm or those specific mm -hmm. halls. You found an article as you were doing your research about Stevenson, which is yet another of the colleges, has a residential building, Casa Septima. Stevenson had multiple language specific uh, residential halls. So when you were at home, you were supposed to be speaking the language. And if I recall correctly, I think Casa Septima was Italian, if I recall correctly. There was a French. I, that would sound correct from that. I, I knew know. somebody who lived at the French only dormitory. But, you know, again, though, in this case, it was a, huh, clearly when you look at the outside, there's another room here, but it's been boarded up and plastered over so yeah. you can't get to it. And I have weird feelings. So, again, it was more of a phenomenological 
I experience these things or this thing seems odd as opposed to here's what's going on here. Yeah. And this suddenly starts me thinking through the lens of eco-criticism a certain amount, right? There's been a lot done on the way that the environment we inhabit shapes our understanding of it or experience of it. And environment, you know, not just being nature, quote unquote, right? right. But any kind of environment, the built environment. So those irregularities, it doesn't match up in your map of the space you can inhabit with the space that's there. Mm -hmm. You know, we always want to find a skeleton boarded up and that's why it's been shut off, not because it's holding the boiler. Right. So there are some service tunnels at my current college below the buildings that apparently people used to be able to travel through. There's some of the colleges that get heavier snow that still have these. Mm -hmm. Montreal has a lot of subterranean oh, tunnels. I, I've been in Montreal's tunnels. Yeah. But, you know, the stories about why they were shut off. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, oh, crime or violence or, you know, oh, someone died. In the late 70s and early 80s, they got shut off because of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of it probably we don't get the giant like 10 foot snowbanks anymore that apparently they once did. Yeah. We don't need those tunnels. Only the maintenance folks do. Mm -hmm. Right. You can walk across the quad in winter or you can walk between buildings. I do think some of that uncanny sense may just have to do with not understanding why the space is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And that probably refers to what seems like untouched nature, even though the idea of untouched wilderness really, you know, climate change being what it is and everything else, you know, there isn't really untouched. But it's, even prior to that, I mean, there's a great archaeology and anthropology book called Before the Wilderness, which talks about how everywhere humans have gone, they've altered their environment. Oh, so yeah. The myth of the person living in harmony of nature is a myth. Oh, yeah. No, I think about the number of places that are deserts now that were once like the Fertile Crescent. Right. Which, you know, there's been some interesting discussions talking about how at least to my understanding, you know, coming at Mesopotamia through that lens of part of what caused the desertification was the silt runoff and lots of deforestation that helped destroy the landscape and choke some of the rivers, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, if you read Gilgamesh and there's this whole part of it where he's got this giant quest to go off and kill the forest spirits so they can chop down more trees to make their cities. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. But yeah, that idea that wilderness doesn't exist, but it felt like wilderness. Even when you'd look up and see a treehouse, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> to me coming from San Francisco and I'd gone to like Girl Scout camp and stuff, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, off in the Sierras where it was a little more distant, but that sense of it being so very different, you know, felt like a special place. Well, and, you know, Girl Scout camp, you're going to go there for a week, maybe a few weeks, but then you're coming home. It's, it's a temporary space in a way that college is a temporary space, but it's a much longer period. And unlike Girl Scout camp, where it's expected that you will go there and you'll be more or less the same person when you come out, there's the expectation that when you come out of college, you're going to be a very different person than when you went in. Yeah, which is a lot of pressure. Yeah. And like I said, you know, leaning on that idea of anxiety or concern, maybe anxiety is such a loaded word, but it is one that comes up all the time in the kinds yeah. of cultural anxieties, right? You know, where you're trying to figure out how you fit in. You know, frankly, I suspect that's a big part of why folklore and especially supernatural folklore is a big part of many college campuses mm -hmm. is it's something that a lot of people have an interest in. It's an easy way to have something to talk about. And if you're worried about fitting in, having that easy topic to bring up is great. I mean, you remember when I was in my early 20s, I was extremely shy, yeah. but I could talk about stuff like this, no problem. And usually people were interested in it. So it's like, okay, if I talk about this, there's a very good chance the person will be interested and then I can actually have a conversation. Yeah. And that kind of like, oh, this experience I had is a kind of storytelling we have a lot mm -hmm. across all kinds of different subcultures and cultures. Now, are, are you comfortable talking about your experience? I can. 
I had, and I think I referenced this earlier, but there was a particular moment that is still in some ways inexplicable to me. Although, you know, as we've noted, there's so many scientific explanations for a lot of stuff. But part of what happened is that my roommate was assaulted by somebody she was on a date with in our room which was where I first got really mad about all those signs that immediately went up about don't walk mm-hmm. alone, carry a flashlight, have someone escort you. But we ended up, because of the trauma of that event, being able to be relocated to a different room, which was, again, a very considerate, I think, yeah. uh, campus housing group. But we had a little while of overlap between when they got us into the new room and when we were supposed to be out of the old room because carrying everything across the quad during the middle of the semester or quarter rather takes a while. But shortly after I started having some of those kinds of moments of like, you know, the hag-ridden waking idea, right? Of waking up in a weird position because I'm I'm a very restless sleeper. I toss around, not as much as my kid, but you know, a lot of crossing and turning, I don't tend to be like the person who's lying there flat on my back. And so waking up with that kind of like feeling of being locked in place on my back with my arms at my sides in a kind of corpse-like position or sort of feelings of unease. And this was, like I said, I'd never had these experiences in the room. I'd heard people talking about hauntings, but this was very specifically in this short period that we were still in that room or overlapping, particularly after we'd moved to the new room, coming back to get things. There was one particular moment when it had kind of come to a peak when I I opened the door to the room and there was, I had this sense of just, if you've ever, and I mean, it's the generic description, but the kind of large predator, right? walking into a place where there's some kind of large predator, which was always the anxiety at Girl Scout camp because we had bears. But that sense of interrupting some kind of huge creature that was there, that was breathing, that was very attentive, right? Mm -hmm. And it was terrifying. And it didn't disappear, you know, when I turned the light on. It, I, I think... In fact, that particular day, I just noped right out. Mm-hmm. It was disturbing enough that even though I was going to grab stuff and carry it, because that was my standard, you know, grab something, take it, a gra- it, it just sort of shook me. It was so pronounced. I ended up just turning off the light, closing the door, not being willing to go in. And it was interesting because this came up later. I'm going to divert out of my ghost story for a sec, because the people who were being moved into our room when I was talking to them when I was finishing clearing stuff out at the end of all this, this came up because they specifically reported they were moving into our room because they were being relocated because of the paranormal activity in their room. Oh, I did not realize that they were being moved out of the poltergeist room into this room. Okay. Yes. They were the poltergeist people I was talking about where we went into a great deal of detail because they mentioned that. And I said, you might not want this room. And they proceeded to talk to me about what had happened and, you know, to make sure. And they're like, this doesn't sound anything like what was going on with us. And if you're the main person who's noticed this, then we'll probably be fine. <laughs> we'll have the proctor put some holy water down here too. Which, you know, like I said, I I found that's how I found out about their particular poltergeist report and the fact that it had been reported and was the reason for their relocation. But so this this was, like I said, a fairly short period of time. And it was not the only time that I had that sense. And again, the waking up kind of feeling immobile and frozen. And there was a particular day. And like I said, this sounds ridiculous, particularly 30 years later, right? As you start telling these things. But I had gone back from downtown. I'd been working downtown. I worked in a toy store. And on the bus ride on the way up, I just sort of 
found myself starting to zone out and was thinking, you know, oh, I should go back and get some more stuff out of my room. And then, you know, kind of being like, why am I? No, I'm going to do that during the daytime. I, you know, that was kind of freaky. I don't want, like, I'm a scaredy cat, but I'm not going back, you know, <laughs> in the evening to this room. I'm good. I'll, I'll do this later. And then I just zone out and start having the same kind of sense again. And I came back and I went, you know, up to my new dorm room and was there trying to read, trying to study, had the same kind of just casual brain drifting experience, right? Where I just kept having that sort of like, oh, I should go there. And I'm like, I can't focus. I'm going to just go. And with this just kind of same loop of, you know, let's go back, grab some other stuff. And then being like, well, this is, this is silly. I'm not doing that. And so, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll just go to the other end of a dorm, which was where I now lived and see these people. And so I headed out and then kind of zoned it and found myself walking out into the quad again. Mm -hmm. Right. Which was a little weird. And I'm like, oh, actually, I probably just want to go see, you know, this other friend who's on the first floor in B dorm. So I went into B dorm and went right up the stairs. And I'm like, oh, I probably want to see my boyfriend on the third floor. I started going past the third floor and I stopped myself and I'm like, well, maybe I've just been awake too long and I'm just on autopilot, but this feels kind of weird and felt like when I turned back down and went down to the third floor, I just had this sort of weird sense of being angry for a minute, which was bizarre for me. So I went and knocked and started hanging out with him and other friends who were hanging out in his room. And I just kept losing track of the thread of conversation and having that kind of loop in my head. And I finally ended up just getting very irritated about it because I'm a very short-tempered person at times and I don't like people telling me what to do, even if it's my own brain. But so I ended up going up to the fifth floor and opening the door to the room where I had the same sense that I'd had that other time mm -hmm. of having interrupted something, but being very irritated about it. And um, went in, turned on the light, and somebody had given me some particular like little mantra, some little Irish protection narrative spell. And so, you know, I ended up walking in and just reciting that over and over again, which went on for a while. And again, you know, sort of sense of threatening presence. But finally, until I felt I was able to focus on something that was not this vision of me being in my room. And then I left. And that was the last experience I had with it. Mm -hmm. But it was really the thing that cemented it as so disturbing. And I mean, maybe it was some kind of dissociative episode, although I've never had another of those. But, you know, or like I said, it could have been a trauma response to what had happened to my roommate. It, it sounds weirdly similar to some anxiety induced problems I had when I was younger. But it was the only time I had that happen. And it also, like I said, you know, maybe I hadn't been getting enough sleep. I was notorious for that my freshman year of college. I could just stay up without any caffeine or anything else, just on adrenaline, which don't do this at home, kids. It's a very poor life choice. <laughs> but it was just such not only this kind of sense of threatening presence, but that weird kind of, yeah, compulsion loop. But it was profoundly disturbing in a way I've never managed to completely rationalize a way mm -hmm. to feel comfortable with it. And then the next day was when the proctor came by and sprinkled holy water, apparently. And the girls who moved in apparently had no trouble with the room. Well, well, that's good for them. They got rid of their spook problem. Yes. One of the things that I find interesting about this is you first told me about all of this back around 1998. Yeah. Which is when you and I were first becoming closer friends. At the time, I didn't really know of any way to explain it. And since then, you and I both have learned a lot more about, you know, yeah. psychological and 
also some physiological things. Brains are weird, yo. Exactly. But one of the things that really strikes me, I've learned some things about how my brain works over the last 15 years that was were unexpected to me, but put a lot of things in my earlier life in a different light. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, my wife and I've talked about a few times is that I have a set of experiences that I experienced one way. And I now know that objectively, my perception of them was wrong, factually incorrect. I'm not, I wasn't having hallucinations or anything like that. It was more that I was misunderstanding social situations. But knowing that I was wrong doesn't change the fact that I experienced them in a particular way and that that experience shaped me. And it seems like a similar thing's happening here where, yeah, you can look back on it now knowing more about psychology, knowing more about physiology, knowing about things ranging from sleep paralysis to trauma and say, oh, it was probably this. But that doesn't change that at that time you had a particular experience. Yeah, and it it takes a few different things put together to make it make sense in a way that is creepy. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be unsettling to you as a result, because even if you can explain it all, it doesn't change the fact that you experienced it as something inexplicable. Yeah, and there are things where... There are places that feel weird, yeah. whether it's because there's a cultural association with it. I mean, because part of it, like, I'd say I've always been a little more kind of like agnostic about spirit, because I'm like, I don't know enough to make a declaration one way or another, whatever. This is not my concern. But so it did mean at one point when I was bored in San Francisco, I did go out a couple of times with kind of casual ghost hunting group Mm -hmm. that was specifically like, okay, you know, we've got a mix of different people who have those different perspectives of, oh, the sensitive or the cynic. And here's some electrical stuff just, you know, as a fun kind of thing. And we went a few different places, but there was only one of those that ever felt profoundly creepy. And that was, I think, Evergreen Cemetery in Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah, which has got its own ghost lore. Yeah, it does. And probably part of what may have made it unsettling was, you know, walking through earlier when it was light and seeing like areas where obviously somebody had dug some dirt up Mm -hmm. (laughs) from above graves, because I don't know of any particular belief system that involves graveyard dirt that I'm perfectly comfortable with the ways that gets applied. But the sense of creepiness that came with dusk there yeah i like old graveyards mm-hmm. you know my my former partner my kiddo's dad you know we went for graveyard in a movie a couple of times up in cornwall ontario because you've got some really lovely ruins there but that again there are a couple places just the creepiness and i can think of all the associations i like but it still feels or felt creepy as hell and i don't know that i would want to go there you know as an evening place I spent a lot of time in graveyards as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I would not do that at Evergreen Cemetery. Oh, I'll tell you, I've been in Evergreen Cemetery at dusk. I And I am, despite the fact that I do a podcast about ghost stories, I don't believe in ghosts. Yeah. I find Evergreen Cemetery creepy at dusk. Yeah, and this is a, by the way, historic cemetery for folks who don't know where yeah. it's got a lot of also very specific, this is the Jewish area, this is the Chinese area, mm-hmm. this is, we're going to separate people in very aggressive ways. And it also extends back uphill to get back to our original topic, towards the UC Santa Cruz campus. Does it? I I never connected that because I never drove. It doesn't reach the campus. I found this out because one day I was walking on trails on campus and then those mm-hmm. trails took me into Poganet Park, which is just uh, off campus. And then I got lost and it was getting dark. And so I kept going on a trail. And next thing I know, I'm in the cemetery. And I'll tell you, the Evergreen Cemetery extends into areas where it's not really kept up. So before I realized I was in a formal cemetery, I was seeing occasional tombstones that were overgrown (laughs) 
and I just I I went for a nice pleasant hike one afternoon on my university campus, and the next thing I know, I'm in the set of a horror movie. Pretty much, um, it'd be a good it'd be a good you know backdrop for a horror movie. Which horror movie wise, that was the other story about Poganet that I saw a few different places mm-hmm. was some stories about the club, the abandoned clubhouse being haunted. Oh, I've wandered over there. Well, apparently that was also the setting they used in the Lost Boys for the grandpa's house. Oh, that would actually make a lot of sense. But it's really fascinating because I saw a lot of that place is haunted. No stories associated mm-hmm. with it specifically, just the knowledge and understanding that it was haunted. Yeah. And in fact, the area where that lodge is located, which is on a meadow in Poganet Park on the slopes right below the campus, the, the university is on a one of the taller hills in the area. So there are slopes down from it. And that is the place that I originally heard the story of Sarah Cowell's ghost associated with. Oh, okay. I wonder what she thought of the movie. She probably didn't think it was much because, you know, she was already 40 when she died. So, you know, damn yeah, kids in their movies. Plus, you know, she was born in the 1860s, so she was probably a little uptight. It's possible. You get waves of different, <laughs> you know, progressive ideas. I'll point you to a couple of communist towns in medieval France. Yeah, but she was from a ranching family, so. It's true. It's true. But yeah, so you do get those kind of something seeming creepy and whether it's cultural association, because I wasn't particularly creeped out by cemeteries. Mm-hmm. Big goth phase. These days I'm more goth adjacent. But that particular cemetery is really the cemetery that I would point to if somebody said, are cemeteries creepy? Mm-hmm. This one, specifically this one. Yeah, which if anybody's in the Santa Cruz area and you want to see this cemetery, it's the cemetery next to Harvey West Park. Just put Harvey West Park into your GPS unit. It'll take you right there. Or if you look up ghost related pages for Santa Cruz, they pretty much all list it. Yep. Well, I've got to go feed my kid. But it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, This was a lovely conversation. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!